Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Alicia A.E. Stallings is an American poet and translator who has lived in Greece since 1999. She has published four collections of poetry, most recently Like, published by FSG, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Her most recent book of verse translation is the pseudo-horomic Battle Between the Frogs and the Mice, illustrated with Paul Dry Books. She has a selected poems forthcoming shortly from FSG, and FSG is also reissuing her first collection, Archaic Smile. She has received fellowships from the USA Arts, Guggenheim, and MacArthur Foundations. Alicia, I'm thrilled to welcome you to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. I'm delighted to be here. So I want to start with the wonderful words you employ in your poems. Here are a few examples collected from your books. Asphodel, Caligonus, Dendritic, Crepsiculum, Adumbrated, you know, and many, and so many more. I regularly share your words, you probably didn't know this, from one of your, from your poems with my father, who is a lexicographer, to see if I can stump him. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, these words, though, are such perfect words in each context and wonderfully poetic. What is your approach to the poetic puzzle of finding the perfect word? Um, I think, you know, sometimes the perfect word is a very plain word, you know, kind of a nugget of a monosyllable. And, you know, sometimes there is that stretch. I do like to get in words that you might not expect to be in the same poem. That's always what I'm excited is if, you know, you think this poem, this word and this word couldn't possibly be in the same you know, world as, as the single poem. So I'm always excited if I can get in, say, I'm trying to think of dendritic with um, one of the other, you know, simpler words in the same poem. So, um, you know, some of them, yes, I guess, um, might send you to the dictionary. Some of them, maybe I fetch them up out of the dictionary. Um, but I hope that uh, they also kind of jostle along with with kind of street words and, and words that you use every day. Yeah, and I don't want listeners to think your, your poems are impenetrable. That's not the case at all. In fact, these words in many cases are just the perfect word. And I've done that before where I'm, I'm sure a word has to exist for something, something very <laughs> specific. And I go off on a research project to find it. And, and, I, and I'm fingers crossed that it's poetic at the same time. Uh, so many of your poems include references from or are rooted in Greek mythology and their poets. Your poems are also personal and grounded in modern objects, experiences, and places. Pandora from Like is one example. How do you balance the present with historical and mythical references? Well, I mean, I've, I've lived in Greece since 1999, and I think, um, although I was writing poems about Greek mythology from long before that, um, you know, there is a kind of thing where it's all happening at once here, you know, you're you might be on the a street named after Heraclitus. You know, your kid is on the playground playing with Xenophon. 
So there, there is this kind of sense where these words are are in the air and these stories are still very much in the air and maybe still even kind of happening. Um, but for me, I think mythology and fairy tales, um, you know, that I was attracted to from when I was a, a small kid, um, you know, have always been for me a way of, of reading the contemporary world. Very cool. Well, you also employ received forms in many of your poems. You even found a way in Hapics to have fun with the limerick. I love those, by the way. My dad <laughs> loves limericks, so I read them all to him uh, while retaining the art of poetry. Why are you so attracted to received forms and does the form drive the poem or do you discover the best form during the revision and editing process? Um, I think those are, you know, they're interesting and difficult questions and may depend in a lot of cases on the poem. I think I wouldn't have a an answer that would cover every every received form that I work with, for instance. I mean, there are times when you, um, you have a kind of fallback form, maybe a villanelle or a sonnet, and, um, you know, you're kind of rusty and you think, oh, I'll work in this. And those poems might end up being real poems, but they might just be, you know, exercises. Um, I have a poem, I think it's in Hapax, Bad News Blues, which seems so obvious that it would be in a blues, literary blues form. Um, but I think it started as quatrains and then it was a sonnet. And only when I found the form for it, did it kind of fall into place. Um, and other times, you know, it's the form that, that drives the, the poem. So I think it, it really kind of depends. And I'm, I'm really intrigued with received forms um, because I enjoy the constraints. I enjoy having certain certain decisions having been made for me so I can concentrate on other more interesting decisions for me. You know, how many lines is a poem going to be is not a terribly interesting decision. If it's around 14 lines, I might expand it or cut it to make it a sonnet and just have done with that, that aspect of it. Um, you know, and other times, and not all the received forms I write in are poetic forms. I've got a, a, a poem that's in a in a multiple choice quiz, which is a, you know, a received form. It's just not a usual poetic form. So I really enjoy working with forms because it's a bit, it's a bit like humor or a joke where part of it is you're setting up certain expectations, mm -hmm. which you, you know, in free form, you don't really have that, those conventions that you're working with or against that you can subvert or you know exploit so i really like how forms allow you um to employ conventions you know even if it's to subvert them yeah that's cool my parents uh, my mom is a composer and you know music is a highly creative art form and yet it's also uh, for the most part very constrained and driven by almost mathematical rules so it's it's yeah it's interesting you you make the point about how the form can help focus you on different things yeah. so you found inspiration in museums and in art implements from the tomb of the poet from your book Hapix is one of many examples how do you approach ekphrastic poetry to be true to the experience that inspired the poem while going beyond being purely descriptive um, well, I mean, I, I would also embrace a purely descriptive poem if it was, it was a really fantastic, purely descriptive poem. Um, you know, I think that's also, uh, can be very effective. Uh, I think, you know, museums are spaces where that kind of put me into 
a poetic frame of mind. I mean, there's that uh, there's that irony of you know here are objects that people from long ago handled or touched or made, so that there's already that kind of built-in you know sense of of time and irony. Um, you know, and they tend to be kind of quiet meditative spaces um, where you know you interact with you you know they're there for you to interact with these objects. So I think sometimes it's museums kind of put me into a poetic frame of mind when I get a chance to kind of wander around them. Um, and you know, what makes a museum poem a successful one and not just sort of an exercise? I don't know. <laughs> I think it it kind of depends, but. Um, I think even from being a little kid, I've got an older poem about going to these weird museums that we used to have in Atlanta um, before Atlanta got kind of fancier. And, you know, they were just odd jumbles of things, you know, put in a museum. And um, I just also kind of enjoyed going and seeing these incongruous things together. Um, so I don't know. I it's they they're places that tend to inspire me, but I'm not sure I I could tell you exactly why. Okay, uh, your poem "Refugee Fugue from Like" is striking in how you contrast the tragedy of refugees with the privileges of many of us. You wrote, "Look how glad our kids are making their sandy town, and how they build the battlements, the laughing waves tear down, but it's the self same water where some swim." and others drown. What is your approach to tackling such a difficult subject while remaining true to the poetry and the subject? I, I think that was something I did struggle with. Um, Greece, um, you may know, has been on the forefront of, of a migration wave and refugee crisis since around 2014, you know, starting off with the Syrian civil war, but it really um, kind of, came to a peak around 2015. I mean, you're talking, you know, tens of thousands of people arriving, you know, daily in on a tiny Greek island. I mean, I, I think it's hard. I think it's hard to understand the scale of what was happening versus how small Greece is or how small the islands were. Um, and, you know, every day, just kind of waking up to the news of of children drowning and so forth. I mean, there was that the one the one kid, um, Curdy, I think that the, the photograph that kind of went around the world and everyone was moved by that. But um, I would just say on my local sort of Facebook feed, I was seeing, you know, many more children in, in maybe more graphic, you know, poses and realizing, you know, my own kids were small um, and you'd look at them and you'd say, oh my God, these are, it's like the same, my child, my child has the same pair of pants or something. I mean, it really felt you know, that, that we could be them and they could be us. I mean, I know some people find that simplistic, but I really had that very strong feeling. And, and the water is touching everybody. You know, you're in the Aegean and it is literally the water is touching your child and the water is touching maybe another dead child. And it's, it just, for me, almost became overwhelming for a while. Um, again, how to write about it. I didn't want to exploit other people's stories or other people's experience. Um, I realized I had to write from my point of view, which is kind of an observer, someone in the same space. Um, I think one of the things that helped with that, again, were formal choices. So I have a set of epigrams. I think epigrams work very well. 
um, because they often have a bit of ironic detachment. Um, they can have a bit of wit to them. I know it sounds odd sounding about wit when you're talking about drownings and deaths, but it, it gave a slight ironic distance to have that, that sharp turn, that sharp form. And epigrams have been used for people who have drowned in the Aegean, you know, for thousands of years. They're in, they're in the Greek anthology. So it also seemed to be a formally correct way of dealing with some of these things. So I, I did struggle with how to write about some of this. And um, I even kind of write about that struggle, I guess, a little bit in my poem, Empathy, where, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm saying, you know, I can write about this, but I'm not experiencing this. And um, I think as long as you kind of foreground where you're coming from in, you know, that you can write about current events, you know, as long as maybe you're not trying to um, speak for other people, I think that is where I would feel uncomfortable. But I, I felt as though I could speak for, you know, my experience of um, living with this news every day. That, that's wonderful advice in terms of um, not overstepping and at the same time making it personal and impactful. Um, you've developed a wonderful ability to incorporate structure and rhyme without distracting from the poetry. Burned in Olives is one of many examples where the form is there but never overwhelms the poem. The poet Carmen de Biasi, who appeared in the first episode this season, created a wonderful trio of sestinas based on Shakespearean characters. The Sistina form was there, but never overwhelmed in his case. Uh, what advice do you have for poets looking to try new forms, but not be overwhelmed by the form? Um, I think just, you know, reading a lot of contemporary work and form is, is just a good way to start. I think you can get into trouble if you're only reading, say, Victorian poetry that rhymes because you're going to adopt some of those mannerisms, which, you know, were fine for the time, but obviously are not fine for our time. So. I think there's just a lot of exciting work being done in in meter and in rhyme now in a contemporary idiom. Um, you know, write what you like if you if if you enjoy rhyme poems. Don't be bullied into not writing them. I would say. I mean, I think oftentimes where rhyme gets a bad rap, as it were. <laughs> um, you know, it's just not done well. And doing rhyme well, part of that is kind of absorbing the rules and you know learning how it's done and that's i think largely done by reading poems that do it successfully um i think when people run into rhyme that is sounds really jingly and jangly and mm -hmm. kind of shaped you and that's all you're noticing in the poem um that that's actually often to do with the syntax of the poem you know if you have a poem and it's rhyming cat and hat and mat you know which are all monosyllabic nouns you know it means those monosyllabic nouns are ending up at the end of every end stops line um, whereas if you think if you want to be a bit conscious about it think about rhyming across parts of speech love and above for instance is a, is a good rhyme for that kind of thing mm -hmm. um, then you're going to have more interesting syntax going across the lines and if the rhymes are falling on different kinds of words um, that's often a much more subtle effect so that's something that you can be conscious of. And in fact, if you go and look at po poets who are really good at rhyme, you'll you'll see this in operation. You can just look at the rhymes and say, wow, this person's rhyming a monosyllable with a polysyllable. He's rhyming, or she, an abstract thing with a concrete thing, um, a proper name with a generic thing, and, you know, an adverb with a noun. And you'll see that there's that kind of 
variety that's going against the sameness of the sound jinglings. Terrific. Yeah, and I've definitely used uh, some of your poems as, as, as examples that I think about when I'm trying to avoid that sing-songy um, Dr. Zeusy style of rhyming, which is terrific for what Dr. Zeus did, but but not necessarily for, for other forms. Um, so the majority of your poems are a single page or less. In Lost and Found, however, you build a longer poem from 36 poems following an Ativa Rima form. What was this, or at least I think that was the form you're using, was this poem developed and added to over time or tackled as one project? You know, what was your thought process for knowing when this poem is done, what to edit out and what gaps to fill? Um, it was fun because I, I, as, as you say, I'm mostly, uh, you know, at most a one and a half pager, um, you know, these kind of shorter lyric poems. I mean, I, ironically, I translate a lot of, a lot of longer poetry and I, I think a lot about how longer poems work and what makes them work or not work. Um, I'd also, you know, received a significant grant. I had time to think about writing a longer poem, which is going to be harder to place in a magazine. And, you know, I was doing it more for my own sake, um, you know, and I, it's kind of modeled on various things. You know, I was also thinking about Byron, um, you know, also thinking about lots of underworld episodes in, you know, poems from Homer to Virgil um, to Ovid and thinking, you know, that this would be a fun thing to do, a kind of underworld poem, although it's kind of not really an underworld poem, I guess it's an overworld poem, but um, this idea of exploring a kind of imaginary space um, and getting to use all of those tropes from the ancient poems. Um, so I, I really enjoyed doing it. The Atavarima was, was hard. <laughs> I think that the reason it was so hard is you know you're as a as a rhyming poet as a poet born under a rhyming planet you're often thinking about rhymes in pairs and to suddenly have to pull them out in threes i would sometimes even forget i would real i'd come up a line short and i'd realize i had completely forgotten a rhyme um it mostly came out you know over a period of time but you know in narrative order with my just sort of adding on, there was a point where I realized, oh, I could add some detail here and add some internal stanzas. But I think it mostly kind of flowed from start to finish. Um, and what was fun for me, because I do usually write short poems, was to be able to wake up with a project I could still continue on instead mm -hmm. of, you know, I've, I've written the sonnet and it's a success or I've written the sonnet and it's a failure. And then I have to start over from scratch tomorrow or or work on revising this idea that you could wake up and think, oh, I could go here with this poem and there with this poem. So um, I think that's the advantage of a longer, a longer poetic form. Well, I was listening to an interview with you from several years ago, and you were asked how you know when a poem is finished, and you answered something like, I delete the last two lines. Uh, there have been times <laughs> when I've done just that, when I've been struggling on how to end a poem and then realize the ending is right there if I edit out the last few lines. Uh, what are some of the strategies you employ during the revision and editing process? Um, you know, I, I have a feeling that if you were to ask me this question over time, it would be different. For instance, now, I think if you would ask me, oh, I know a poem's done. I kind of know when I can resist um, rewriting it and fiddling with it too much. Like if I can, 
I can resist going in and changing a bunch of stuff. Then I feel, okay, it's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm ready to push it out of the nest, <laughs> you know, but, um, uh, strategies, um, certainly I do feel that they're all poets. It's kind of easy to focus on the beginning of a poem. And then the problem with the endings of poems is I think there's an anxiety of endings. And, you know, once you're in a poem, it's like you're on this runaway horse and how do you dismount? It's like an emergency dismount. <laughs> and I think that often when poets are anxious about how to end the poem, they write towards a very poetic -y ending. And I find that those really big statement poetic endings aren't often very aesthetically successful. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's often, I feel that when you have in mind the big gesture that sometimes that's right when your subconscious is freed up, which is why so often there's a really good line, two or three lines before, because I think that's the point where you kind of relax because you can see, ah, there's a way to get out of this interesting conundrum that I've written myself into. Alicia, I'd like to hand the mic over to you to read three poems I've selected. I'm thrilled to uh, that you agreed to read these three wonderful poems spanning three of your four books. So I will read um, three poems. This first poem is The Charioteer. It is from my book, Hapax. Um, and it's set in the Delphi Museum. So if you've been to Delphi, you will have seen this really famous statue but even if you've seen you might have seen it in art history it's this very famous stern bronze statue with these amazing eyes and eyelashes um, and it's called the charioteer lips apart dry eyes steady he stands forever at the ready fingers open sensitive to the horses take and give although no single steed remains at the end of tangled reins it is as if we are not here, the way the patient charioteer looks beyond us into space for some sign to begin the race. He has stared down centuries. No way from us, no sudden breeze will trick him now to a false start. He has learned the racer's art to stand watchful at the gate, empty out the mind and wait. As long as it is in our power, we gaze maybe for half an hour before we turn from him to go outside the hills begin to glow burnished by a brazen sun whose course now is almost run we shiver and around us feel vanished horses plunge and wheel and i will read this poem from uh, my most recent book like um, and it is called simply Scissors. Scissors are singular and plural, uncanny. One plus one is one. Even in solitude, a pair, cheek to cheek or on a tear, knives at cross purposes, bereaving cleavers to each other, cleaving. Open, shut, give and take all dichotomy in their wake. What starts with size concludes in oars, his or hers, mine or yours. Divvy up, slice clean, slice deep in pinked jags or one swift sweep, the crisp sheet where they met and married, the paper where the blades are buried. 
And this last poem I'll read for y'all um, is called Alice in the Looking Glass. I have a number of Alice poems, and I guess in some ways, um, you know, Alicia is a kind of variation on Alice, so I, I feel a kinship to Alice. Alice in the Looking Glass. No longer can I just climb through. The time is past for going back. But you are there, still conning books in Hebrew, right to left, or moving little jars on the dresser top like red and white pieces on a chessboard. Still, you look up curiously at me when I pass, as if you'd ask me something, maybe why I've kept you locked inside. I'd say because that is where I'd have reflections stay and surfaces where they cannot disquiet, shallow for all that they seem deep at bottom. Though it's to you I look to set things straight, the blouse askew, hair silvering here and here, where everything reverses save for time. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, I have to say the poem Scissors is by, I have read that to so many people. Right, you have to this this po this poem is just so fun to read the sounds of it. So, when you're uh, what what role does reciting poetry play in your editing process? And then, on top of that, when a poem is done and you are preparing to recite it, what are the the techniques you use to get the poem to be ready to recite? Which is you know different than what someone would see on the page in many ways. Um, I mean, I do think I always write with sound in mind. Um, I do, you know, speak and utter my poems, so I'm 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 quite conscious of the sounds. I love to read before a live audience um, because it's just a kind of feedback you can't really get any other way. You really feel it. You feel it. You know, if you're reading a long poem and the interest in the room just goes totally slack. You almost just start cutting on the fly. You're like, oh, that stanza <laughs> can go and that stanza can go because you can you can just feel the attention. Um, you know, a lot of my work does involve sort of wordplay and puns, and I guess some of them might not be audible, might have to be visible. Um, but I do really enjoy reading them aloud and um, you know hearing them in the air and sort of seeing the response um, and scissors is one that's that's fun to say mm -hmm. so I, I chose uh, poems written over many years how do you view the changes in your poetic style as you've layered on new experiences and gotten older uh, you know, I think in some ways, uh, like all of the elements are already kind of there in the early book. And I I feel that I have kind of different modes that I write in. And I'm always kind of returning to them and exploring them in different ways. I mean, you know, I, I think I can control a longer poem now, which maybe I wouldn't have been able to when I was younger. I, you know, I do have different subject matter, you know, that happens, you have kids and, you know, you get older and your parents get older, people die. Um, so you do have those other experiences, but I think a lot of times I'm kind of like, I have four or five modalities and, um, you know, I just keep going back and exploring those in different ways. I mean, I do, I don't know. I think there probably aren't any poems in syllabics in archaic smile. So that might be kind of, a, a movement, but um, 
you know, I really enjoy working in those now. Um, and I'm always kind of looking for new forms to play with, but, you know, I feel like there's, there's certain types of poems and they kind of reappear. Mm -hmm. So it's maybe not so much evolving as, as kind of a sort of Fibonacci spiral. <laughs> so uh, just a couple more questions. What advice do you have for those new to poetry as writers and as readers of poetry to get the most out of the art form? You know, I think you just reading poetry is is really important. But I think if you're serious about appreciating poetry and about writing poetry, there really is nothing that compares to memorizing poetry. And I think that that is probably the most important thing. And it's the thing we've kind of lost in education. People used to have to memorize poems. I mean, maybe they'd complain about it, but, you know, you would always have it. It becomes part of the wiring of your brain. It literally becomes a part of who you are. It's wonderful to have a whole bunch of poems that you've memorized if you're swimming laps or you're on a walk or you're you're waiting for something. It's almost like you, this tape deck, if I may use an old metaphor, that you can mm -hmm. just turn on and it's kind of entertain you. And it, it kind of keeps you sharp too. But I think you really learn how a poem works when you memorize it because suddenly you have to pay attention to those little things that maybe your eye kind of slid over like is this a the or an uh you know is <laughs> is this a like or an as you know what's happening here um so i really i really strongly recommend you know having i think a a a, a strong working i think you need at least a couple of hundred lines of poetry in there somewhere but you know even if you have a few short poems um it's just it becomes part of who you are it becomes part of this library of your brain and i think there's just nothing that is quite as good as that it's also wonderful of course um to just read poems or even to write them out to keep a kind of commonplace book um where you sort of save poems that you like but just in some way physically interacting with the poem even if it's retyping the poem um i think just is a different level of interaction with the poem than just reading it on the page uh, that's wonderful advice. I love that. My older daughter was in theater for all four years of high school and, and was the lead in many plays and had to memorize an extraordinary amount of amount of lines to do so. And and I think, yes, it's a skill that you once acquired benefits you in ways you don't even realize. So just uh, one more question. Um, you mentioned a couple things in the in the bio that I read, but the what are the things you're working on now that we can look forward to in 2022 and beyond? Well, I mean, I've got the this selected coming out and, uh, you know, Archaic Smile is being re-released. I, I know that book is hard to get a hold of, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that. That's obviously not new work. So in a, a way, a, a lot of the time I've spent this year has been um, kind of looking back as I've made these selections and been thinking about them. I think that's taken up a certain amount of wavelength where, you know, I have written not very many new poems of late, but I'm kind of looking forward once the selected is out to um, kind of having that space be free again and, and hoping new poems will will decide to enter it. Um, I'm always working on translation. I'm translating a, a modern contemporary Greek poet right now, and I'm working on a, a Georgics, a Virgil, um, and I'm always writing a lot of prose, you know, a lot of reviews and essays and, and things like that. So um, it's all in the mix and, you know, I'm I'm looking forward, I, th I think, to having these books out and kind of having this space free up again. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for sharing your poetry and your insights with the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. It's been a privilege having you on today.
Thank you so much for having me. The Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings.com.